Um, I'm going to wrap up the gospel, which sounds a little heretical, right? You couldn't, shouldn't be able to wrap it up. Um, but I want to wrap it up. And I, I, I've been a little surprised um, in the way that we've been talking about the gospel. I've not gotten a whole lot of pushback. And either that's just like we're all on the same page or you haven't said anything to me. Uh, because my main premise, and I've just, I have felt compelled for a while to talk about the gospel in a way beyond the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I, I've expected some pushback because even when I just say that, I, there's something inside of me that's like, oh, you're going to hell, Mark. Uh, you're going to hell. You shouldn't say that. It's all about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But that's because that's what I grew up learning. That's what I grew up hearing. And it is crucially important to the gospel story. In fact, the, the apostles um, would go on to say, our gospel, what we preach is Christ crucified. And, but, but there's really more to the story of the good news. And the reality is, as the scripture even tells us, that, that the demons, those fallen heavenly entities, believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But Jesus actually came and did all of that for a reason. He's drawing us to something. It's why you can attend church your entire life and still feel empty in your faith. It's, it's why you can believe all the right things and, and yet you know, wonder if God actually exists. There's so much more to the story of the good news. And we, looked, we began talking about Paul when Paul said, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He was quoting uh, Isaiah and Nahum. Nahum was quoting Isaiah. And Nahum and Isaiah in the Old Testament were talking about a return to the fulfillment of the promise of the promised land. They had been exiled from the promised land. And Isaiah said, it's coming. The time is coming. God is working so that we will be restored to his promise of the promised land. And how beautiful will be the feet of those who come over the mountaintop to tell us it's time to go back to the fulfilled promise. And then Nahum actually quotes Isaiah when it happens and Assyria overturns Babylon. And they says, you can go home. And they, Nahum says, how beautiful are the feet of those who come and bring the good news. We get to go home. So we've been talking about going home. We've been talking about the gospel and the good news in the sense that the death, burial, and resurrection is absolutely the gospel. It is absolutely true. And it is the cornerstone of our ability to, to know God and to walk with God but it was ushering in something, or as we've discovered, taking us back to something. That place where we were before, where heaven and earth were one place in the Garden of Eden. While we, don't, we won't go back to garden, the Garden of Eden, there's a new heaven and a new earth that's coming, and we can experience this, this crossover of the heavens and the earth right now through the Holy Spirit within us. Last week we talked about the reality, if we're going to call it the good news, then what is good? And we looked back over the story of Genesis 1 through 3, which gives us a way to understand all of the rest of Scripture when we understand what happens between Genesis 1 through 3. And we looked at a few places where the Genesis story, while told with a few different circumstances and different characters, basically tells the same story. And we came to the place of saying that God gave us what was good when He created. And then he, we were created in a world that was good. And when something wasn't good, God worked to make it good. That's what we talked about last week, and that is the story we find throughout. We looked at the parable of the lost son. Um, we, we generally talked about all of the lost stories. And in each of them, they are very similar. But we saw a picture of a God who's not angry and looking to judge you and not looking to make your life miserable or try to raise the bar to a place you can't reach so that he can then punish you. But instead, we have this picture of a father standing on the porch just looking for his son to come home. It was just a beautiful picture. And what we've discovered is that these parables, they teach us about the kingdom in a way that, that you know, they can literally change us, but we can also really ignore them. Or just say, that's just too complicated to figure out. That was part of the point of the parables was for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. For those who have eyes to see, let them see. One of the ways I, I kind of experienced that this week, this has been kind of a, a long, busy week for the Love family. And um, as, as many of you know, Deidre's uh, father has been diagnosed with stage four cancer. And he's traveling to Houston 
for treatment. We got a good report this week that um, the treatments at least have halted on the spread and growth. Um, whether or not it's going to continue to reverse, um, we're waiting to see. But we've seen some really positive things happen there. But Deidre, um, one of the one of either she, her sister, or her brother are taking our, their parents because they're just not able to navigate that now. And and so we were trying to figure out the car situation. And uh, Deidre, her she has the newest car um, in our house, and it's still not a new car, but she has the newest car. It's a Toyota. It's not supposed to ever break down, right? Um, and so the, her hatch wouldn't open, which I don't know how this ha- like. Not only would it not open, like it's got the power hatch, you know, like you push a button and it just and it's just really great. And some of you are like, I don't have a power hatch, um, but. Um, we don't either because it doesn't work. And not only does it not work, it's locked. So like if you try to pull it, you're like, I'm breaking something. Like it won't even open. So our family actually owns four cars because <laughs> we're just, we roll that way. Um, actually, I have one car, Deidre has one car, and then Emma has one car in Birmingham at college, and Jake has a car down at UCC. So anyways, we decided, well, what? car should you take your dad down to the airport? They were flying out of Atlanta. And um, I said, why don't you just take my car? Your hatch doesn't work. You can put his wheelchair and all your stuff in the back, and you can, you know, I've got this weird check engine light that's on, and, and, uh, but you can, you can, um, who said that? Who said, was that Tara? Oh. Um. And I said, but it should be okay. It's running. It's, I think my thermostat is stuck open because it's running. Cold, it's running cool, but it's running fine. It'll get you down to the airport and back. Like, <clears throat> Deidre's smarter than I am, and she said, no, I think I'm going to take my car, and I, we can work it out, and we can get the, we can put the seats down and get the wheelchair in the back, and blah blah blah. And I was like, okay, yeah, great. That's okay. You do that. I'll take my car and I'll try to get the parts in to fix your car. Um, so when you get back, I can fix your car. So she she goes. They drive down on Saturday and Sunday goes fine. And then Monday, I'm walking out of Walmart. I'm walking to my car, and uh, I walk by this car and I smell coolant. You know that sweet smell of coolant, you car folks out there. You that sweet smell. I'm like, oh, oh, that poor person. That poor person. I'm so glad that's not me. I better get my car fixed before I get in that shape. And literally got in my car at the Saudi Daisy Walmart, drove five minutes to my house, and as I pull in, a rush of steam comes out of the front of my car. So my thermostat is now apparently locked closed (laughs) and has exploded my radiator hose, so coolant's going all over my... um, and I'm steaming up, and I'm smelling that sweet coolant smell, which is not sweet at all um, that it's happening. And and I, I and, and I'm in I'm stuck because I have no cars at home. Jake's down at UTC, Emma's down at Birmingham, Deidre's down in Atlanta, or she's in Houston. Her car's in Atlanta, and I have to pick Malia up from school in an hour. And then Jonathan has a uh, a parent meeting I'm supposed to go to um, for his basketball team. And how am I going to get all this done? How am I going to get all this done? And so I'm like, I, I can call Enterprise, and they can come and bring, you know, come pick me up and take me back to get my car, and and uh, and then I can go pick them up. But there's no way I can do that in an hour. I mean, it'll be an hour before they get here. There's no way this is going to work. So I called Jake up. I'm like, Jake, I'm sending you an SOS. Um, are you available? Now, Jake normally wouldn't be available. He would normally be working. Um, but he's coming in the end of his semester, and Deidre had said, you know, Jake, why don't you see if you can just ask not to work for the rest of this semester? And then once the semester's over, you can go full-time and you know, put a lot of time in them. But let's just, let's just finish out the semester and be, just focus on your schoolwork and don't be stressed about work. And so he did, like a week before. Now, here's, here's for me what it means to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Clearly, I didn't have that when I suggested she take my car because what would have been worse would be my my father-in-law and my wife and an exploded uh, radiator hose down in Atlanta. That would not have been a good move. 
But as I sat there thinking and waiting for Jake to come, and I'm stripping all the parts off the car to have it ready to go get it fixed and get the parts and borrow Jake's car and get the kids and everything, it just occurred to me how many things had to go right for me to be able to pull off what I'm about to pull off today. You ever have those moments? How many things have to go right here? Like, but he's got to get here, and I need to be able to go get the parts because he's got to go back to school tonight, and I, I've got to then get the kids. I've got to get to the meeting, and I still have to feed them dinner because, you know, Deidre's not there, and Dad doesn't prepare ahead of time. So I've got to take care of dinner, and I've got to get all this done, and I've got about two and a half hours to get all this done. And it just occurred to me, what if Deidre hadn't suggested to Jake he should take the semester off or the rest of the semester? He wouldn't have been available right now. He wouldn't have been available. And what would have happened had she taken my car? And there was one, there was one place in town that had my, my molded upper radiator hose available. It was in Hickson. It was your old stomping ground in Hickson. And now it would be easy to say that was very fortuitous. What a great coincidence. But what I have found is this is one of the ways God works. And to have ears to hear for me in this moment was to recognize, God, you started working on this problem three weeks ago when Deidre said, you know, maybe you shouldn't go to work. Maybe you should take the rest of the semester off. He started working on her three weeks ago to help me then. It could have been a coincidence. It could have just been Deidre's a lot smarter than Mark is, which is true. It could have been any of those things, but to have ears to hear is to see the hand of God work in your life in different ways. And I think that's what the apostles did, and I think that's what Jesus was encouraging us to do. And when we begin to understand the world in bigger terms than simply um, you put one foot in front of the other, and this is the mechanics of how do you get through life, and you go to work, and you get your money, and you plan well, and you make smart choices, and everything will work out as long as you do everything just right. That is not having ears to hear. Having ears to hear is to see God spoke to Deidre to speak to Jake. And Jake was available and open, and he came to help me. And I was able to pull this repair off and get to all the kids. And at the end of the day, what's the worst thing that really would have, could have happened in this moment was that I would have been late getting the kids, and I missed the parent meeting, and it would have been you know, frustrating. But yet, to have ears to hear for me in this small little moment of my life was to say, God, thank you for working in our family and for being, being on top of this for me. This is one of the reasons I love Jesus and that I follow Jesus. is because He does this all the time in my life. Now, I do not want to give you the impression that somehow I am charmed and God just makes all my problems go away. I just want you, I want to dispel that myth right away. But is it possible, and I don't know what the answer to this is, is it possible that anywhere along any of those steps, someone could have said no, and it would have thrown everything off? It just worked out fortuitously. I don't know. There is a place where Jesus says, if you have eyes to see what I'm doing, you're going to see some amazing things. Other people will chalk it up as something else. But if you are looking for what I'm doing, you are going to see some amazing things, which led me to do a number of... I'm not even into my sermon, by the way. So we may have to make this last another week. But um, so it, it, lead, it led me to worship in that moment. I'm just thankful for God in that moment. It led me to think about how much God really cares about our family. Cares about your family. A busted radiator hose of all this and a, and a, and a, a bad thermostat. All the things that could have gone wrong, like that's not bad. That's really preferable to a lot of other things that could go wrong. God's still there. Part of the good news is the, re, the reality that the heavens are intersecting the earth through you in your life. And how are we living that out and expressing that 
And how are we showing that to other people who don't yet experience the kingdom of heaven? Because the kingdom of heaven is good. It is preferable. How do we do this? The parables teach us in a way that we can go, wow, Mark, that was a very fortuitous list of things that just happened to happen. You could tell that story, but it was completely by chance. A person can read the parables with that mindset, or a person can read the parables and go, I see what God is doing here. And we can miss, miss them. And this parable that I want to share with you, like he, it's hard to miss. <laughs> it's kind of one of the funny ones. It's really hard to miss. The parables teach us things like, a seed that is planted, the kingdom of God is going to grow from these small little humble beginnings to something incredible. Teaches stories like the kingdom of God is so generous that it's it's like a widow who lost her mite, her coin, and she went and searched through the entire house to find it. Or kingdom of God, when you talk about God seeking after you, it's like a father who's standing on a porch who's just saying, Come home. I love you. Come home. I don't care what mistakes you've made. That's not fair to say. God does care about the mistakes, but He's paid for them. That is what Jesus did on the cross. Just come home and just be at home. Come come back. Even if you squandered your whole inheritance, there's always more for you because you're my child. I love you. Just come home. We pick up this story in Luke 14. And it's really a, it's a fascinating story. And, and what I want to uh, what I want to talk about is so who's going to be at the table? And the table being the kingdom. Jesus uses the parable of the table, but I'm not going to I'm not going to tell you who's going to be saved and who's who thinks they're saved and they're out. I'm not, that's not what the point of this. But he talks about who is going to be at this table. And verse one says one Sabbath. So this is. This is likely on a Saturday somewhere. Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday. It goes till sundown on Saturday. Sometime in that period of time this happens. This is the time when it was against the law, against God's law to, to work and to, to do a number of different things. You were supposed to rest and to worship and to think about God. And One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, which I imagine is Jesus' reality no matter where he goes and who he's around. Like They're like, what's going on with this guy? But the Pharisees, like they're always looking for him to trip up. If you read the next few verses, he then goes on and he heals someone who's lame, and they get really mad at him. Like, it's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. And that's kind of the introduction to the two parables he's about to tell. We jump down to verse 7, and we jump down to the parable of the wedding feast, which by the way, Jesus' response was, hey, who of you, if your ox fell into a ditch on the Sabbath, wouldn't pull him out? Um, And just as his first response, but then he unpacks a longer response to them, these people. And and the Pharisees in this parable represent real people. They mean, these were real Pharisees at the time, but they also represent a people who thought they knew more than anyone else. They were at the height of every ladder and culture. I mean, they were at the height of the church culture, but the church and the governing structure outside of Rome, of course, uh, were they were the same. I mean, they were they were the highest um, place here. And he told a parable, starting in verse seven, to those who were invited. So, Pharisee invites him to this dinner party, who's invited a bunch of other people, presumably a lot of other Pharisees. Um, and he told this parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Because, of course, in the system of hierarchy, social status, and shame, um, everybody takes the best seat they can, and then nobody wants to sit in the worst seat. Similar to on the playground when you're growing up, and no one wants to be the last one picked to play, right? Uh, that's the kind of a shame culture that we live in. He's saying, Hi, when you come in, don't take the place of highest honor, because what if you're not the place, the person of highest honor, 
And now all of a sudden, the only seats who are left are at the end of the table, the lowest places, because everyone else has filled everything else because they're doing the same thing you are. Don't do that. So if they say, give your higher honor person, you've got shame, taking the lowest place. Verse 10, when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I wonder who was sitting in the place of highest honor, how they heard this story. Because <laughs> they were listening to this story. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He goes, you know, he goes to a place and he teaches on what he sees. So when he's out and about walking uh, with his disciples on the road, he says the kingdom of God is like seed that fell on good soil, as they all look around and see the good soil. Or seed that falls on the, the rocky soil, because over there or off the road they can see the rocky soil. He, he tends to draw things from where he's at right now. He's been invited to a dinner party. I do not want us to miss the fact that the two parables he tells are about a dinner party. And yet still, no matter what the parable is, there are those who will see and those who will not see. Those who will hear and those who will not hear. But he says this, and we find this throughout the Scriptures, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And Scripture says that in a number of different ways. Things like the first will be last, and the last will be first. Now this is, this is an important meal. This is an important moment. All week they prepare for this, what's called the Shabbat meal. And, and to come and to be at a place of importance with all of these religious leaders, like this is the most important Shabbat meal that's going on in the city. And they invite Jesus, and they're watching him, and they're already a little ticked off with him because, you know, he healed a guy on the Sabbath. And he tells them, you should not, you who are jockeying for the place of highest honor, this is not what the kingdom is about. That's not exactly how he said it. He said it in here and eyes to see, or you can have ears to miss it and eyes to be blind to it. Those who thought they deserved honor sat in a place they thought they deserved while shaming those they felt had less honor. Do we do that? How do we, and I, you, I, you don't have to answer this, but you should think about it. Where are the places in your life that you hold great honor? You wield that honor. Where are the places in life that you see those with lesser honor? And you like that you, you have more honor than they do. Status is a huge part of the kingdom of God. Status is a huge part of our culture and how we live our lives. Who has it, who doesn't? We begin learning that lesson super early in school, right? Who's popular and who's not? Who, has, who sits at the table full of, of friends and who sits by themselves? I mean, we this shame culture of honor versus shame, this infuses our entire culture. And we bring it in to every conceivable nook and cranny of, of, our, of our lives. So if we have different political ideas, those that share our political ideas have honor, and those who don't should be shamed, right? We do it when we um, get invited to a meeting and we want to know who's the most important person in the room, and when he, there's a person of honor, and then, why are you here? A person of shame. Now, there are a lot of people that feel that they are in a place of honor, but there's also a lot of people that believe they, they're living in a place of shame their entire life. And maybe some in this room feel, I've, I've, been, I've been wading through a place of shame my entire life. In the church, we do this too. I, you know, and, and typically, we put some people on a pedestal or not. And there are all kinds of, of these places. Uh, you know, pastor often gets put on a pedestal, right? But, but Scripture never speaks of the pastor. It does say that a, that a pastor is worthy of double honor. But it does not mean that a pastor is worthy of more status. 
But you'll have to unpack that later, by the way. I remember growing up at a time when the church was vibrant. I don't just mean us here. I mean, the church in America was vibrant and growing, and just most people went to church somewhere. And I, I remember in that time I was going through seminary, and the number of times my friends would ask for discounts because I'm going into the ministry. They'd go and, you know, get their car fixed. Hey, have you got a ministry discount? And I always thought that just, they got to feed their family. I mean, it's not their fault you've decided to take this path, you know? We've seen time and time again pastors who get put on a pedestal and then they fall hard because. No one was made to be put on the pedestal. And once we put someone there, that person is going to fall eventually. It is going to happen. When I, I was growing up, I felt like pastors and, and then like the really high people were missionaries. Missionaries that would go out into these third world poor countries. And man. And then we backed that kind of thinking up with some places in Scripture that seemed to that this is actually a thing in heaven. You know, things like store up for yourself treasures in heaven, but not on earth. As if, what if I have more treasures than someone else in heaven? Or we used to joke about, what if my mansion's bigger than yours? Or, you know, Billy Graham, he's going to have 15 bathrooms in his mansion, and I'm only going to have like a half bath in mine. You know, we, we, we talk about things like that, and what we do is we take the kingdom of earth and we transplant it on the kingdom of heaven as if those things matter to God when they don't. And so Jesus is about to reveal to them this status that they are proud of, that they're excited about, means nothing. In fact, not only does it mean nothing, it's probably you may not even make it to the kingdom of heaven. And you feel like you're the experts in it all. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The kingdom is exactly opposite of what's going on at this dinner party. And what we find is that the kingdom honors those who honors others rather than themselves. Let that sink in. The kingdom honors those who honors others rather than themselves. In other words, the first will be last and the last will be first. What are ways in which your life right now, you could spend your life showing honor to others? And what Jesus would say is, those are those who will be honored by my Father. It's exactly opposite of the culture. It's exactly opposite, honestly, of what we even do in the modern church. Because take away, you know, like staff positions and how we, you know, Paul says, listen, this is just all one big body. And like every body part is equally important to the next. But what are, are some other ways we do this? Who has more sin <laughs> versus who doesn't? And we learned early on if we hide our sin, we can look to have more status within the church because we look like our lives are purer than they really are. And we turned a lot of people off to faith with that kind of mentality. There are all kinds of ways we try to to find honor. I find it interesting, and I, I would love to have been a fly in the, in the room just to see what they're hearing this message. Are they listening? Are they talking to each other? Are they going, what's this guy talking about? He doesn't know what he's talking about. This is why we need to get rid of this guy. I don't know what they're saying. But I'd love to hear what it has to say as they all sit down in this dinner party. And he says, the kingdom of God is actually not like this dinner party at all. Those who have ears to hear, have ears to hear. And those who don't, don't. We read in verse 12, he moves on to the next parable. <laughs> and he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, these are all the picture of those who have no status in their culture. It's not just, oh, we've we got to go find all the people who can't see. I mean, do you know anybody that can't see? Because that's who we're supposed to invite to our party. That's not really the point. The point is invite those with no status. 
for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, don't invite the people that can do something for you. Invite the people that don't have anybody doing anything for them. Elevate them. This falls right in line with love your neighbor as yourself. The kingdom rewards those who honor the least of these, who can do nothing for them instead of those who can give them something in return. The kingdom values the giving away of status more than claiming it for ourselves. This is so important for us to understand. Not just as Christians, but us living in this world. Living in this nation. And we want status and we want influence. And Jesus says, this is not what the kingdom's about. Who's going to be at the table? See, at Jesus' table, it's going to be those without status. It's going to be those who aren't trying to elevate themselves. This falls again into line with what we read about for the Gospel, which is we come to the Gospel through repentance, through a lowering of ourselves. Not because we've earned it. Not because we've deserved it. Look at what I've built for myself in the Kingdom of God. No, you can't build anything for yourself. It requires Jesus to die on the cross for you. Clearly, neither the guest nor the host had any idea what the Kingdom of God was really about. They had no clue what the kingdom of God was about. I, 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 the, the, the older I get, the more sermons I preach, I think, I don't think Mark gets the kingdom of God either. And yet God still helps me fix my radiator hose. Still walks with me and draws me and shows me these things in His Word that are so exciting and, and, and just fun and... God, this is amazing stuff. But clearly, the guests nor the host had any idea what the kingdom of God was really about. In fact, they kind of demonstrate their just aloofness and just ignoring the whole point of what Jesus is trying to say in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, so here's the fly on the wall. This is what was happening. When they heard these things, he said to him, I don't even have a good voice for this, but this needs like a really grand voice right here. All right? Right? Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. What he's saying is, like we are right now. I, I, you know, clearly he doesn't know who Jesus is, right? Because you, you don't say that kind of stuff when you're talking about like the king of the kingdom of God, you know, at your table, you know? But he said to him, <laughs> this is what Jesus said. And basically what he's saying is, hey, this is the kingdom. Man, it's going to be so good when we do get to do this right here in heaven. And I mean, I'm at the place of honor here. I'm going to be really at the place of honor in heaven. And he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five oxen and I go to examine them. Please, please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and he said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. The least of these, the, those with no status. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Mic drop, Right? For those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. What Jesus has just said. And what Jesus has just done. And what Jesus reveals to us about the kingdom in this one story throws everything we typically know about life and status out the window. What are some things we can pull from this? One, the banquet. The banquet's a big deal. The master's a big deal. Like This is like the party of the century. Everybody wants to be there. 
But he goes and he invites the people that generally would be the first in this case, likely, are the very Pharisees sitting around the table, but they have better things to do. They're stroking their feathers or, you know, making sure everyone sees them. They're making sure their phylacteries are longer than everyone else when they go out into the town square and they pray. It says time and time again, when you seek status and honor over other people, you've gotten your reward in full, which we understand to mean you get nothing in the kingdom of God. Not what the kingdom's about. Servant goes out and he finds those, those who are overlooked, those who have no status, those who aren't saying, look at me and look at my righteousness. He says, bring them in. And expand the search. Go outside of the invite because they're coming in too. This teaches us some important lessons about the kingdom of God. And number one is this. Not everyone who thinks they know what the kingdom is really do. This this should cause us great humility for those of us who think we know the Bible. The Pharisees knew more Bible than I'll ever know. I mean, I'll probably know more New Testament, right? They didn't have that. But as far as the Old Testament goes, I'll never know what the Pharisees, how they, as much as they understood about the Bible. I mean, they were experts at the law. They could, they could quote from memory most of the Old Testament. And yet they didn't understand anything about the kingdom of God. Not everyone who thinks they know what the kingdom is really do, and we find that in the church all the time. We find some atrocities done by Christians clearly can't understand Jesus or the kingdom and, and fulfill those atrocities. It just can't happen. We find you know, almost daily now uh, Christians acting badly in public places behind closed doors at their churches. And we think, surely not. They don't know what the kingdom is about. Second thing that we can learn from this is that God is preparing an incredible banquet for those who seek the kingdom of God over the kingdom of the earth. Now this is he's going to nail that point in, in just a minute. But this is so important for us today. This is why we've got to figure out what is the kingdom? What is scripture te- teaching us? What is this showing us? What is this really all about? Because he's in, he's preparing a banquet but it's for those who are seeking the kingdom of God. Not, not getting God to, to, to put a bow on the kingdom of the earth, but he, he's actually seeking the kingdom of God. He's preparing that. One of the scariest passages in Scripture come in Matthew 7, verse 21, and this is what Jesus says, and I think this is what he's alluding to. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Status. And cast out demons in your name? Status. And do mighty works in your name? Status. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Apart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you don't get the kingdom. You've never been seeking the kingdom. Because there's, there are many that want to use the kingdom for their own personal benefit. And that has never been the point of the kingdom. The point of the kingdom has always been for the benefit of all people. If they would have ears to hear and eyes to see. And the third thing, and and I wrestle with this, and I encourage you to wrestle with this. And I am not... I I am by no means um, the model for this. I wrestle with this too. There is no social status in the kingdom of God. No one sits above another. So why do we do that on earth? Why do Christians do that on earth? I think a part of it is also we just don't really believe the stuff we read. Like I want the kingdom of heaven, but just in case it's not real, I'm not going to miss anything here. And so I'm going to store it for myself treasures in heaven. And, 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 and we've got so many places that reinforce this in, in, in Christendom. You know, I, one of the problems, I, I, I'm a huge fan of uh, Dave Ramsey's um, How Do You Manage Your Money. Like, he's brilliant and has done so much good for so many people in How to Manage Their Money. 
But there's always been one thing that I've struggled with, and it is the line that says, live like no one else so that you can finish it. That's right. I mean, that's like, right? But I mean, who doesn't want that? And he does. You know, would, would Jesus be okay with multi-million dollar homes for his followers? I don't know. I'm not one to judge that. But would he? I don't. Live like no one else so that you can live like no one else. I just, I, that's, that's an American pursuit of happiness concept. That, that's not the kingdom of God concept. I, I struggle with things like that. At the same time, I don't live in a shack, right? I, I, you know, I, I've got clothes. I know what I'm going to eat. Do you know the last time I didn't know where I was going to get a meal was? It's been a long time. It's been a long time. I'm not saying that you take a vow of poverty because quite honestly, when we study the history of, of church history, like the, the gospel would not have propagated the way it did without, without wealthy people. Just flat out. wouldn't have happened. Like, You've you got to wonder how Jesus wanders around teaching all the time with this band of 50, 70 people, 120 people following him around, and they sit around and they talk about the kingdom. Like, that sounds like a pretty good life to me. But you, somebody's got to pay for all those meals, right? Somebody's got to pay for those clothes and those sandals that get worn out and the hotel rooms and the water to get them from one place to the next. Somebody's got to pay for that. And honestly, when we go back and we begin to, to read like Josephus and some of the, the early historians, what we find is this incredible story of those who have means meeting the needs of those who go out and tell. So this is not a this is not a, a call to poverty. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, and 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 it's not the point. So you didn't, you know, the, when when you've got the the the, you know, Pharisee, the godly man, giving his big offering, and then you've got the little poor widow, and she puts her one little coin in there. He says what she's given is so much more significant than what he's given. So even there, he rejects the idea of status as a result of wealth. But they, they used their wealth for something. They used something. There is no social status in the kingdom of God. No one sits above another. How do we live that out in our world when we see people getting just tromped on all the time? How do we come and honor those who have no honor? How do we elevate those who have no status? This is the kingdom of God. This is kingdom thinking. This is what happens when the kingdom of heaven intersects the kingdom of earth. This is what's going to happen when Jesus returns and there's going to be a new kingdom or a new heaven and a new earth. This is what it's going to be like. What does that look like for us? There are so many ways that we can push back on this. Culture pushes back on this big time and you know, there's just something in us that longs, not only longs for status, but we worship status. We listen to celebrities who have no life experience and they tell us how we're supposed to live our lives. Right? Why do we do that? If somebody has political power, why do we worship them? Why do we think they've got the answers? You know, Culture pushes back on this big time, which is kind of the point that the kingdom of God is completely different than the kingdom of the earth. We can start with questions like, what status do I have? What do I have? What status could I give away to others? These are uncomfortable ways of thinking about life, I know. This is uncomfortable this is completely opposite of the way most of us were brought up. Not because our parents got it wrong, but this is we're steeped in it. Like every we we breathe it in. I mean, it just it just it gets in every crevice of our lives. This this way of thinking, it, it almost feels bad. It almost feels like no, now you're you're just trying to it's just victim mentality stuff. That's not what this is. Jesus was not a victim, and yet he constantly gave away status. He even gave away his godship at one point limited himself 
And he said, we were, we were not his subjects. We were his brothers and sisters. Which is, wow. That's amazing. Like he's, he's, he's not just giving away status. He's elevating us to his status. Which, by the way, that takes some unpacking. I'd, be, I know, I'd like to pull that comment back. Because that can go in some bad places. He does not elevate us to a place of, of the divine. But he elevates us to his status. What are the implications of the people we worship? This is why pastors who are worshipped fall. Why celebrities mess up. It reminds me that God looks on our heart, not our actions, not our status. All right, I've got to finish. i got to finish up. Jesus was telling the Pharisees and their guests that not only is this meal not the kingdom of God, it is the exact opposite. But they didn't get it. They still didn't get it. And these parables, as I said before, they teach us about the kingdom in such a way that we can either be changed by them or we can absolutely ignore them. At some point, we have to be faced with the words of Jesus and say, what am I going to do with what Jesus is saying here? He goes on in verse 25, and I, I'm sure at this point, like the Pharisees are already a little ticked at him. They're already mad at him. They've been watching him. They were expecting him to do stuff they were going to be mad at. They were mad that he healed the lame man. They're going to be mad about these stories. And, uh, and Jesus, this is how he operates. He's like, you know what? You think you're mad now. Let me just finish you off. <laughs> a great crowd accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, Cannot be my disciple. Done. <laughs> People are like, out. We are out. And Jesus does this at different times in his ministry. He says something so against the grain of our understanding of what life is about that we say, unless we have found something, we say we're out. He goes on and says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I'm not going to go into this. There's much we can say about this passage. Jesus is not actually calling us to hate our mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. That's not actually what he's asking us to do. He's just saying, um, if you're looking for something else other than the kingdom, you're going to miss the kingdom. My mother and father and brothers and sisters' relationships are best understood within the context of the kingdom, not the context of the world. But if your context of seeking after family or jobs, or wealth, or status, or comfort, or whatever, you're going to miss the kingdom. I want to just end this series by saying this good news can be interpreted from a number of different ways. I've clearly come at it from a direction of those with status today. Kingdom is for those that don't have status. And if you're one who feels you have no status, you're overlooked, you're invisible, no one ever honors you, understand that Jesus died on the cross for you. If you're a person who feels that you've got it all together and you know your Scripture, and if, if heaven is real, then you're certain you're going to be there. Don't be so certain. What does it look for us to take this message to the world? What if about this parable of the great banquet and we stop trying to influence all the influencers and we go to the people that can't do anything for us? Blind, sick, captive. Jesus said, these are the people I've come for. This is, I wrestle with this. I don't. I don't talk about these things out of a place of authority or out of a place of I've gotten it, I've covered, I've done it. I speak in a place of struggle. This is what the kingdom of God is. This is what Jesus says it is. And so I must struggle with it. And for that reason, I will pick up my cross. And we will have to denounce our status or at least use it for the good of others. And in so doing, when we ask the question of who is the table, probably not the people we think are going to be there. It may not be some of our Bible scholars. It may not even be some people that go to church every Sunday. It may be the person who's been invisible, 
the entire time they've ever been a part of anything, no one has sought them out because, you know what? They've got nothing to offer me. That may be who's going to be at the table. That is more likely who's going to be at the table. The good news is this. God so loved us. And when we chose to walk away from the life that He created us for, He continued to pursue us. And in pursuing us, He said, I want you to come home. And you can't do this on your own, so I'm going to die on the cross for your sins. I am going to defeat death, and I'm going to take the consequences of your sin because you can't do that on your own. And if that is something that sounds enticing to you, if that is something that, you, that sounds like a treasure to you, or a pearl of great price to you, and you're willing to pursue it above all other things, then it is yours as my free gift to you. And my Spirit will come and live within you and will speak to you the mysteries of all things. And you will walk with me. And one day you will rule with me in heaven. But even the mindset of ruling in heaven is not one of a headship over another. It is co-rulership. Like, it never works anywhere, does it? Well, it's going to work in heaven. That's the way it works in heaven. And so the good news is, I'm inviting you to come home. I'm inviting you to experience the kingdom of heaven right here and right now and in the future. That is the news that if that is good news to you and you have ears to hear and eyes to see, then it is yours. Repent and turn away from the ways that you've tried to live life in any other way. Come and follow me, and I will show you the mysteries of the of all things that you never could have possibly imagined. That's the good news. Father, I thank you that you have loved us. Thank you that we can make mistake after mistake. We can chase things that we shouldn't be chasing, and yet you continue to, sh- to come after us. You continue to stand on that porch, looking out on the horizon, waiting for us to realize the folly of our ways and that we would return to you. Father, I pray that as we walk out of this place, we would begin to see ourselves and others differently. We would begin to see the status we're seeking and that you would you would heal us from that kind of a pursuit. I pray you would give us eyes to see those who have no status. And how do we go to honor them? Father, let us experience the kingdom as it really is. Help us to know you and follow We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, next week. We'll talk about the promised king. We have baptism. Advent starts. I'd love to see you here. Invite some friends. Have a great week.